Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director of Cultural Engagement for the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. My guest today is Gary Brashears, who teaches systematic theology at Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon. Welcome, Gary. It's good to be here, Daryl. And uh, Gary is a, a returning guest, so he's a veteran of foreign wars when it comes to the <laughs> podcast. Uh, and today our topic is big church or little church. We're going to discuss church in general, ecclesiology in general, and in particular the tensions that sometimes exist between big churches and little churches, and hopefully have a discussion in which we are able to affirm the value of each. So that's, that lays out the, um, the, uh, uh, the plan. Uh, so it's time for uh, confessions. Gary, what church, what kind of church do you attend? I, I'm a member at Grace Community Church in Gresham, Oregon. Uh, it's a Baptist background, conservative Baptist, uh, but community church. Uh, we run about 650 adults in our auditorium in three services, uh, about oh, toward 1,000 in a weekend. Uh, so we're kind of a mid-sized church, I would say. Okay, and then just to – I have I – have feet in two churches. Um, one is the one that I've attended ever since I was a student here, Trinity Fellowship Church in Richardson, which runs uh, probably about 250, 300 on, uh, during the week. It's a somewhat traditional church, has a touch of liturgy tied to it, uh, very historically rooted kind of church. And then, uh, and then my daughter works at Bent Tree Fellowship, which is a huge church. They probably run five, six thousand on a weekend, and uh, a classic uh, mega church, if you want to think of it that way. She writes curriculum for fifth grades and under. So my wife attends there uh, to be with the grandchildren. This explains why we're in the situation that we're in. And so I'm Elder Emeritus at the first church that I mentioned, and so I attend the first service at at Trinity, get in my car and drive the 15 minutes or so that it takes to get to Bentry so I can make the second service and make uh, lunch with my kids afterwards. So so that's uh, that's our church situation. So we're actually describing a situation in which we are all uh, participating, if I can say it that way, um, running the scale in terms of, uh, of size of church. Well, let's let's start off by talking about uh, about mega churches. I want to start there because it's, okay. they're probably the the more controversial. But before we get there, I want to ask a basic ecclesiological question, and it goes like this: the church, a building, a people, or a presence? Okay, uh, which, which which of the above, or a combination of the above? What are we talking about when we say church? Well, I assume you're thinking biblically, not culturally. That's correct. In culture, the first definition of church is a building. Uh -huh. Biblically, it's not a building at all because there weren't church buildings in the original. They met in the temple courts initially, and then in homes. There were no church buildings until quite a bit later. So the pictures uh, of the church in Scripture is a group of people committed to Jesus Christ and His mission forming a community of the Spirit. That's what we see in Acts chapter 2. 
and then it carries out all the way from there. And the size, well, there were 3,000 people con converted on that first day. That was uh, a membership class, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then the, the leadership develops, so that's a piece of it. There's a team of elders that lead a church, and then there's a presence in the community, and critical of that whole thing is God present with them through the Holy Spirit and through His Word. So we're not thinking about a, a location so much, or even four walls. It's irrelevant biblically. Okay. So, uh, and, and yet, as you mentioned, culturally, most people when they think of church, they say, "Well, what church do you attend?" And they think of a location, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. And, and so, the other, the other cultural definition that I need to really, really speak against is that the church is a meeting that we go to. So we say things like, "Hey, going to church." this morning mm -hmm. by which we mean a meeting and that isn't the that a church does meet but a church is a 24 7 type thing okay so so we've got these cultural things that are going on that make people uh think of the church how you said that it's a community uh that uh, where the spirit indwells Let, let's think more about the biblical side of this uh what how should we think about the church well the church primarily is a is the followers of Jesus Christ. We see that there in Acts chapter 2, kind of a foundational thing, where it's a group of people who have repented, believed, been baptized, and joined together under the fellowship of the apostles, the leadership there, the community. They do sacraments together, and they extend the gospel into the community so that many people come to Christ. Now, you, that, that was a description of the early church, because you, as you mentioned, they fellowship with the apostles. So. Mm -hmm. um, so when we think of the church today, what should we be thinking about? Or, or maybe this is the way to ask the question. When people go to church or look for a church, what should they be looking for? Well, there are several things to look for. One is a church that is faithful to Jesus Christ and his teaching. Of course, many churches have abandoned that and become more culturally relevant. Uh, another thing to look for is a church that's doing mission into the community instead of just an ingrown, we do stuff together separated from the community. And a, a real factor there is this is a place where the church is going to invest in me to for my spiritual growth, my personal growth, so that I can build a community, so we can be a part of a community that's doing the gospel work of Jesus Christ or the kingdom work of Jesus Christ in my region. Okay, and when we speak of kingdom work of Jesus Christ, I realize these are all broad questions. Oh yeah. Um, uh, when we speak of kingdom work of Jesus Christ, what are we what are we talking about? The kingdom work of Jesus one is forming a community of the kingdom uh, where righteousness prevails, and a key idea of righteousness is not just that I'm a guy who follows the rules. Righteousness biblically is the idea that we have a community where all relationships, God, others, self, rest of creation, are well-ordered, where people are flourishing with dignity as God designed. That's what we're trying to develop, and then we extend that kingdom presence, living under the rule and reign and life of Jesus. That's what we're trying to extend from our community into the community around our fellowship. Okay, now let me, let me um, I'm going to, since we've brought up kingdom work, I want to bring up an issue that, that sometimes comes up in relationship to these discussions, especially since you mentioned community work. You know, some people complain about a, a social gospel, 
And what they do is they say, you know, it's the church's job to preach the word, and then the activity, that's something completely separate. Break that down for us, because sometimes I think we've created a division here that is yep. greater than, than what the Bible actually suggests. The the problem comes with that term social gospel, which was developed a hundred years or so ago by a group of liberals who bought into the idea that we need to do good work in the community. We need to build jobs and we need to feed hungry and those kinds of things, but they divorced it from the connection with Jesus Christ. So when you think of kingdom or gospel or righteousness, biblically, the first relationship is the relationship with God. So we have to develop that. That's the evangelistic thrust. But then we have the, the relationship with others, that's the community of the Spirit, technically the Church. We have relationship with ourselves, growing as people equipped for every good work. But then we have for the rest of creation, and we're extending the goodness of God into the community, like Jesus in Acts 10.38, where he went about preaching and doing good, and I think that's the same mission of the Church. When we separate living the life of Jesus as a community from living the life of Jesus into the community around us, I think we've actually truncated the gospel. Yes, uh, the passage I like to bring up in this regard is Luke chapter 4, where Jesus preaches in the yep. synagogue and talks about his message and mission that he's anointed by God, that he's called to preach the good news. Uh, and to bring, you know, and to liberate the captives, he uses all this uh, freeing language, liberation right. language in the, in the theological sense of the term. And then the very next scene is a day in Capernaum in which he's actually carrying out the ministry that he describes. So there's a match between his word and his deed. And, yes. and we see the character of his ministry being not one of word only, but actually of action that reflects and gives credibility to what it is that he's claiming to bring. Correct. Galatians 6.10 is the same kind of thing, doing good to everyone, especially those of the household of faith. makes it very clear that doing good is not just in the community, but it's not exclusive to the community. And coming back to your favorite book, Luke chapter 3, when John the Baptist does his foundational call to repentance, the people ask, well, what do we mean by that? And he says, if you got two cloaks, share one with somebody else. That doing good is that sharing and doing, helping people who are in need, and not just inside the fellowship, it's in the community as well. So the community is supposed to be characterized by a kind of demonstration of God's grace and caring for people that, that, it, that actually helps to undergird the testimony of the message that's being preached. Yep. Yeah. If we speak in word only, we kind of fall prey to James's thing. We're giving good advice to people. We're not giving help to people. When we put them together, the good news of Jesus with the good life of Jesus, then it reaches into people's hearts and they join in and give praise to God. Let your good deeds so shine that people give praise to God, Jesus put it. So what do you think caused the division that, that, that we sometimes end up seeing between this emphasis on the preached word versus the kind of community activity that's supposed to reflect it? I think that historically, again about a century ago with the Rauschenbusch and his followers, who divorced the social work from the gospel work. And so what was very true in, say, in the Civil Rights Movement, uh, well, the Freedom of Slavery Movement back in the Civil War era, it was led by Christians who saw people being mistreated and spoke powerfully for their freedom. But in the early 1900s, they dropped Jesus from the equation and just did good works 
and it was the classic liberalism, the kingdom is in your heart, and they didn't see the need to do evangelism, getting people into contact with Jesus, and then the fundamentalist reaction was to be reactive, and no, we will stand for evangelism, and then they lost the doing good. We need to bring them back together, I think. Okay, so uh, one final question kind of ro walking down this road, and, and that's, it's this. There are a lot of things that go on in the culture at large that, that in which many part people participate within the culture that are good. They, 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 uh, minister, they do minister to people. They produce some forms of flourishing and care and compassion. How should the church view those kinds of activities? And what I have in mind here are there are all kinds of, of civic organizations and that kind of thing that exist to, to help people in one way or another. And, and sometimes you could say, well, we can do our own thing and, and reinvent the wheel to a certain extent and do this right. over here ourselves, or we can join in and in the midst of that not only show the church's presence, but actually rub shoulders and engage with people from other backgrounds and maybe even expose them to the gospel in the process. How do, how do you fall out on, on those kinds of, of concerns and that kind of mix? Yeah, I think it's absolutely essential to join in with the community and do it in the name of Jesus. Uh, I'm here in Portland and we have what we call CityServe, and the churches of Portland are joining together to assist state agencies. Department of Human Services, uh, school systems, and we come in and help them do what they want to do anyway. And boy, the name of Jesus is getting all kinds of positive work. We made the front page of the Portland Oregonian yesterday because the people who are serving the homeless with shelters are almost exclusively faith-based, by which you mean Christian organizations. We made the front page of the Oregonian because we're serving the homeless. And, and I take the it the, name of Jesus was there. <laughs> and I take it the Oregonian isn't actually normally viewed as a church uh, propaganda uh, organ. No, it's <laughs> it's more like Portlandia. There are actually some some really fine believers that work at at the Oregonian, but their editorial policy is not Christian. I assure you. Yeah, uh, I, I I love to tell a very similar story about a project in West Dallas in which several churches. Uh, banded together to plant a church. This is about 30 years ago, a little more than that now. Uh, plant a church in the poorest area of Dallas, African American community, and in the midst of doing that, uh, they had an African American who wanted to go back to the projects to minister there. But they planted a church. The second thing they did was build a gym. The third thing they did was build a school. And yep. uh, 10 years later, there was an editorial in the Dallas Morning News entitled Angels in Our Midst. Yeah. And uh -huh. it was a testimony to the way in which churches had banded together and actually had put together a community project that was actually transforming the community. There were statistics that showed this. And they raised the question, why is it that this can be done privately through the churches and yet, you know, uh, desegregation was a big issue, and Dallas right. was under desegregation orders longer than any other city in the country. And yet, when it comes to dealing with these kinds of issues in our schools, we do so poorly. And the point was is that sometimes churches do this better than anybody else. Yeah. Uh, same kind of thing in terms of the testimony that exists. So there is this – it builds, as we suggested before, it builds a kind of credibility for the message so that when someone preaches God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life or however you introduce – you're yep. talking about the gospel, there's something there behind it that where people can go, yeah, and I can see it by the way they engage yep. the community. 
What happens when it becomes the social gospel is when we're doing those kinds of things and we stop mentioning that we're from Grace Community Church or we stop mentioning the name of Jesus because it might offend somebody. And that's the secularizing temptation that comes with those kinds of things. We find here we don't have that problem at all. We just speak winsomely and with the background of love and care, and people are very welcome to receive us. Yes. Well, uh, I hadn't initially intended to go down quite down this road, but it's a good road to set the stage because I think it raises the question we kind of come back to, is the church a community and is the church a presence? And there's it is a, both. Yeah, it is both. And the church as a community functions where God has his people. And it functions where God has his people in such a way, hopefully, that God's presence and grace and truth in in the in the context of living out and the relevance of life is evident uh, to people uh, around them. Fair enough. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, let's talk about big churches here. Um, okay. uh, big churches are supposed to be, in the eyes of some, bad. Uh, they are a way to um, how can I say uh, generous to the culture. They are. Um, they are seeker sensitive is sometimes the word you hear attached to, to big churches and and the church is supposed to be for the believer. Um, uh, you know, you could probably add to the list the, uh, beyond the things that I'm. The, the music is wrong. Uh, you know, everything about it is a mess. We need to go back to the you know the traditional uh, hymn bearing, uh, uh, Bible loving. Uh, Community, uh, internal community, faithful uh, community. Now, of course, I've way overdrawn this uh, so, to to make the point. But uh, your comments. Well, how should we think about about uh, the megachurch movement, and and how should we assess the different kinds of megachurches that actually are out there? Well, there are a lot of different kinds of megachurches, and you've got ones that range from multi-campus video venues to large buildings. Uh, you've got people that have teaching teams and charismatic single pastor. You've got people that are very gospel-oriented in, in megachurches. You've got others that are very community-oriented. So there isn't any stereotype that does that covers them. There's a huge variety of large churches and small churches. So again, to assess them, you have to come back. Are they faithful to the gospel? Are they really preaching the word? Are they transforming people's lives? Are they building community of the spirit where the people are encouraged to grow and love Lord Jesus Christ even more. Uh, same thing, same criteria for large or small on that. The advantage of a large church, one of the advantages, is that there's, uh, well you mentioned your, your daughter is writing curriculum for fifth grade and under, because large churches can do specialized work and hire people that are just really, really super competent area. They can produce curriculum that then the local small church that can't afford to hire a curriculum writer can benefit from those because at least large churches I'm around are very free to share their material with other churches that want to uh, 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 use that material. Yeah, and, and, it does, and it produces the potential for a variety of experience. Of, uh, uh, there's usually a large pool of gifts that are available in a large church, which then impacts the way in which the worship is done and the quality of the worship that it's done, the expertise that's brought to that process. It seems to me that there are uh, some real advantages to the, to the size of the church. You know, the people and – and I know people who are very uh, theologically astute. Who's 
major complaint about about uh, seeker-oriented megachurches and megachurches in general is, is the idea that the church is really the nurturing place for discipleship for believers as opposed to being about evangelism. Their theory is, right. is that evangelism should be taking place throughout the community, in the community outreach, through its members, but the gathering time of the church is a time for believers. What, how, do you, how do you assess that critique of large churches? Well, the, the mission of the church is to do evangelism. Uh, some churches do that through what I call, uh, what's often called the attractional model, the come and see. So you come and you're introduced to the community of the Spirit, you're given the gospel in the morning service, and then the training, the nurture of the believers happens at another time. It may happen on a, an evening service or it may happen in smaller groups. It has to be there, but is the nurture of the church really on the Sunday morning gathering? Uh, most churches I go to, there's not much nurture at all happening on Sunday morning. They have a, a preaching and a song service and a cup of coffee and you go home. There's not much nurture going on there at all. So that what you do on the Sunday morning service can be very evangelistic or very teaching oriented, but you have to do both. The question is which one goes where? Okay, so when we think about the program of the church, and we're thinking about this theologically in terms of how a church hopefully ideally should be functioning, you really have to look at the whole program of what's happening in the community as opposed to one particular moment or hour. Fair enough? Yeah. Well, see, that's what comes back. We define church as a Sunday morning meeting in our culture, and biblically that is so incredibly wrong. Church is a 24-7 work of the people of God. So when does nurture happen? Well, sometime during that 24-7. When does evangelism happen? Sometimes during that 24-7, hopefully more than once. But when we define church as the Sunday morning gathering, we have way underdefined the church, and that's the, that's the ecclesiological attack that I want to make. It's not just Sunday morning. Okay. So, so the question then becomes that your service could be attractional, but your discipleship and your focus on discipleship uh, b- by the way, uh, it, it's hard to do good discipleship and good teaching in a in a very large community group in which there are a variety of things going on in the space of an hour. Um, you know, you're worshiping, you're doing your announcements, you're praying as a community, you're and then you've got your sermon. Which you know, if 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 the only time the church is teaching is the is the thirty minutes or so the pastor is speaking, um, that's that can be a problem. You've got you've obviously got your Sunday school, you've got your small groups. There are lots of venues yeah. in a church context in which nurturing can take place. Must happen outside the Sunday morning gathering, because that's all the nurture we get. We're going to be stunted growth for sure. I don't care whether it's large church or small church. And this is why it's very, very important for, for people who think about church and who engage with the church to think about the fact that they are part of a community that's designed to function in life, that's your 24-7, as opposed to thinking about, oh, well, the church is a place that I attend, and as long as I'm there one hour a week, I'm, I'm, I'm a good and faithful member. Yeah, ecclesiologically, you could not be more wrong in defining the church. Well, I guess you could be more wrong, but that's terribly wrong to define the church as your Sunday morning gathering. It's way too limiting in terms of what way it is. Way too limiting. So, so. I grew up on a farm in central Missouri, 
and our community, I mean, we helped each other out on crops. We did all kinds of things together and then gathered together for Sunday for the specific purpose of singing and praying and preaching as a community. But the life of the church was all week, all week long. I think we can do the same thing today and should do that today. So uh, I'm almost hearing, now this will be another exaggeration, you could almost throw out the hour uh, a week service out of the mix and still be very much the church. I don't want to get rid of that. Even <laughs> gathering together is a good thing too. Yeah, right. But if you, yeah, it's got to be. It has to be more than that. Yeah. And so many churches have given up, and it's only the Sunday morning service. And this is large and small. And I think that is just a desperate mistake. Okay, so let's let's talk about. Uh, I, want, I still want to stay focused here on the church. These churches of size, because I yep. do think that one of the things that many mega churches do. They're important, and it's important to appreciate it, is the way in which they can impact through community outreach, through the kinds of ministries they have, because of the amount of numbers that they can pour into the effort. That's correct. The sheer numbers of people have an impact and an opportunity for specialization and specialized equipping that is a huge asset to the larger church community. And, uh, and, and so in that regard, I think it's important. Another thing that I think is important in the background here that we haven't talked much about is, is that we tend to think about the church as individual congregations, whether they're small or large, right. whereas in fact, if we think about this biblically, the church is actually the combination of all those congregations right. as opposed to being one particular community. Right. Uh, One of the emphases we've done here in Portland in the city serve is talk about the church of Quad County. It's actually four different counties in the area, and we band together as a single organization for gatherings for prayer and worship as well as for service. And that's so many different different denominations, and that's maximized, well not maximized, it's really helped our influence in the community, our evangelistic outreach, is because we do have that kind of unity across congregations and denominations. Yeah, that's exactly where I'm going, that, that in thinking about individual units and not thinking about how the units have the potential to connect together and right. minister together side by side, particularly in many of the community projects which, which have demands that usually one congregation can't meet. Um, that that uh, there are real opportunities for uh, for presenting the presence of the community in the city in a way that a single congregation, almost no matter how large it is, uh, couldn't couldn't pull off. That's correct. That's correct. And and so that means that if you're a pastor of a church. Um, and I, I do think this is a this is a temptation in in the ministry, is you become so concerned about how your own community is operating and functioning, that you can almost become isolated from all the other potential Christian activity that's going on around you, that actually provides uh, other opportunities for your community to grow and mature, uh, in, in efforts that might involve more than just your community. Yep. One of the things that I really like is I, we're out in Gresham, East County here, and we have the a prayer fellowship once a month, and pastors and leaders from the various churches come together. We pray together, we do some uh, scene together, and then we just talk what's going on. And the pastors of the churches and the leaders of the churches are friends as well as uh, co-laborers for the cause of Jesus Christ in East County. It's, it's so helpful to have that kind of unity. 
Yeah, we have two things going on here in Dallas that I can mention that are like that. Uh, Dallas is in the second year of what's been called Movement Day. It's actually something that's come out of Tim Keller's church in New York, and they've decided that the second city that they wanted to uh, push in this direction on was Dallas, and they've had two citywide meetings um, encouraging particularly churches to minister in the community, looking really, really hard in a special way at, at, at uh, cross-ethnic ministry, if I can describe it that way, um, and, and making churches aware of needs in other parts of the city. And and bringing people together—that's one thing that's happening. That's that's along those lines. And a second thing that happens is there is a there is a very uh, good tight personal network between many pastors of the leading large churches in the city. Uh, that and they meet together uh, once a month uh, to interact, pray together. Uh, let each other know what's going on in their communities, uh, think about ways in which they can work together, that kind of thing. Um, very, very healthy ministers group in the old sense of the term, uh, but cross-denominational and, uh, and really very, very uh, effective. When we were introducing the table, for example, uh, just getting launched, that they invited me out to speak with them, and so you know, immediately all the pastors of many of the major churches in Dallas knew what we were doing, right. um, and and could get and could even give me feedback, which was terrific in terms of what was going on, in terms of what would be helpful to them, and that kind of thing. Thus, we're doing a topic like this, and mm-hmm. uh, um, and and I think that the potential there is huge in terms of uh, of what can come out of that kind of cross-community ministry. Right. And that's where large churches can resource smaller churches and form that community of, of churches together that's so helpful. And the, the piece that I like there is when large churches see smaller churches as partners in the ministry that they can help out with the unique things that they can do, but they can also appreciate that small churches can do things that a large church can't do. So again, there's that partnership of different ways of doing things. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh, that raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Yeah, and I'm going to transition here to the small church in a second, but I don't want to – I want, there's one right. more observation I want to make that piggybacks on exactly what you said. Uh, again, an illustration, a concrete illustration, because I think making this concrete is important. Um, I know of a church – in fact, I was in a church in which there was a very uh, 
a painful transition, if I can say it that way. A pastor who okay. had served for a long time was let go, and uh, and it kind of shook up the body because the minister had been there a long time, et cetera. And there was need for uh, for reflective and reconciliation work in terms of what this, how this move had impacted the particular community. Well, it so happened that uh, a larger church that knew about the church. Uh, had a pastor who specialized in reconciliation work. I mean, you, here's, this is your – they can specialize, they can hire someone who's, right. whose goal is to – and he actually serves this way around the city in various kinds of situations like this. So the smaller church con- contacted the larger church, and the larger church really, for lack of a better description, lent their minister to this community for about a, a one-year period of periodically meeting with the elders and helping them think through what's going on, drawing off of his experience, his many experiences of working through these kinds of situations, mm-hmm. and really helping the church that had been a little unsettled by this experience kind of get back on its feet and get going again. Yeah. Um, that would be very, very hard to do if, if you didn't have these uh, places where there is a, a combination of a wide array of skills. Uh, con- um, built in one location. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the same kind of thing happened. I know you've been a part of it, where large churches have asked you to come to their city and do lectures, mm-hmm. and then they invite people from many different churches to come be a part of that teaching time. Uh, if there isn't a, the large church that has the budget to do that sort of thing, it probably wouldn't happen. But what an incredible resource to the church as a whole. Yes, exactly. So, so the point here is, is that it's probably a little too easy to stereotype that big is bad, um, or that, or or that uh, the reason a church is big is because it's simply placating itself to the culture at large. I think that's another charge that we often hear about big churches. Is that I well, can speak from personal experience as a pastor, pastors up here, that many of the large churches are very, very sharp in their gospel preaching. They're not truncating anything. And they're growing quickly because of that. People are looking for a straight preaching of the Word of God. And some of the churches I work with are very evangelistic, but boy, do they preach the gospel straight up and hard, and they don't soften anything. So the idea that we're large because we're uh, trying to be relevant and just dumbing down the gospel, there are some, but there are many others that it's exactly the opposite. They're large because they're preaching the gospel with power. Okay, now in the midst of this, there's another part of the conversation that needs to be injected in before we transition to the smaller church, and it's this, and that is music, music style, the way in which people um, accomplish this out- outreach. You know, people do come sometimes to a big church because it provides all the kinds of, of community presence and services that people are looking for. It's able to minister across the family. It's able to do something for the adults, that kind of thing. But sometimes the charge is lay at the feet. Well, it's that contemporary music. Now, here's the question I want to ask about this. Where in the Bible is there a description of the kind of music that we should have in the service? Well, clearly we should sing only psalms, Daryl. You would know that. <laughs> Anything other than psalms, we should crucify people for doing that. Yeah. yeah obviously, that's not what I mean to say seriously. Uh, scripture never describes the worship style. I was in Amsterdam teaching at uh, the Tyndall Seminary there in Bad Hovendorp a while back, 
and I was down at the Rijksmuseum downtown Amsterdam, and I saw two forms of the same picture. The second form of the picture got the artist almost killed, and I was looking at the two. I had to look for a bit and figure out that the thing that got the artist killed was he drew a picture of a church with an organ in it, and having an organ in a church was heresy 300 years ago. Well, uh... I, now it's a sacred instrument. I know. Well, we've been sunk in liberalism, obviously, for a long time. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but seriously speaking, there really isn't any specific guidance in Scripture about the kind of music that we have. Uh, what I like to tell people is, is, if you read the pastoral epistles, it really tells you very little about the hour that we tend to argue about a lot. Uh, uh, or even what hour to have that hour. Exactly right. Uh, it's much more interested in the character of the people, in how the people are being nurtured in the Lord, and there really are a wide open variety of means in terms of trying to get there, uh, in terms of presenting and reflecting and worshiping. Uh, in relationship to the truth. Yeah. And large churches are not always characterized by loud uh, music. Some of the best music I know of is from large churches that have large choirs and large organs and just exquisitely beautiful music in a more classical sense. So, uh, to me, thinking theologically, the music wars that we kind of went through for a period of time was one of... uh, Almost hate to say it this way, but this is what I'm going to say. What I'm what I'm thinking, and that is one of the silliest arguments we've had in the church in a long time. It's a little bit like arguing over the color of the carpet. What carpet should we put in the new building? Blue for heaven or red for the blood of Christ? I mean, you know, I mean, you make the call. Yeah. It. I. The thing is, what is worshipped in the music? How is the gospel proclaimed in the music? How does it help me worship God and believe in what he's saying? That's the character of music. The musical style, I've certainly got my favorites and least favorites, uh, and I'll just for the sake of not getting myself crucified by people who love what I don't love, I won't say what those are. But yeah, those styles vary, but let's not fight over that. I actually think there's a lesson in worship styles that gives a pastor an important opportunity to teach, and that is that in producing some music style with variety, um, what you're asking people to realize is, you know, you may not like the hymn that we're singing right now or the worship song that we're singing right now, but hopefully down the road there's one coming that you do connect with. And you need to remember that different people do connect to different styles and ways That's of right. music and, and and that it's important that they all be ministered to in one way or another the the thing that I that I uh, hate to see is to kind of watch a church get locked in and kind of just slowly grow old because it's locked into that style making no effort to connect uh, yeah. to younger people by how they engage in worship and in the process they're cutting off their future mm-hmm and that's the point I would make. Uh, I'm not a musician, but if you're whatever style you do, do it something that your church can do well. Mm-hmm. Uh, trying to imitate somebody for the sake of doing the newest and the latest is not necessarily the right thing to do unless you can really pull it off. Hmm. Okay. Well, let's let's turn our attention now to the smaller churches, and okay. uh, we've, as you've suggested, there are things that smaller churches are able to do that larger churches really uh, have to work harder at in some ways. I mean, the most obvious thing is that 
that there is uh, there is an intimacy and a and a potential for intimacy and fellowship and knowing your the person who's sitting next to you in the pew, in mm-hmm. a, in in the context of a smaller church, that larger churches have to achieve in some other way, because That's it's because it's not going to happen in that in that hour that we've talk so much about, uh, because from week to week, you may not be sitting next to the same person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really true. Uh, when, I'm in, when I was in smaller churches, I really like coming together from the Sunday morning worship and knowing the people who are there. I know their stories. I know many of their uh, inner stuff well. And there's a, there's a, community that, a community of worship that happens when I'm worshiping with people that I know. I, I, I now fellowship in a church and preach in a church. Most of the people there, I don't even know their names. You know, there are 600 people there. I can't possibly know all their names. But what happens, being a traditionalist, I always sit pretty much in the same spot. So we have a fellowship of the left side forward that we all kind of know each other. <laughs> yeah, and, it's, and it is funny how that works. It's kind of like the classroom. I, tell, I tease my students that uh, – um, that students are um, uh, are Arminian on the first day of class, and they're Calvinists after that. You know, yes. they pick they pick their chair the first day of class, and that becomes their space theoretically. And then they're pretty much in that space the rest of the semester. You get a few rebels who move around, but basically that's how things work. And and you know, practices in the church work that way. Well, of course, in a small church, you learn all those things. That's <laughs> Um, you get to know people at that kind of detailed level in terms of what their preferences are, who their kids are, what they like, what they're involved in, etc. Whereas in a large church, unless you move to some type of small group involvement, uh, you're not going to find that very, very easily. Yeah, and in the large, the good large churches I work with all make great effort to get their people into some sort of ministry team, some sort of home group, some sort of missional community. Uh, now, to be sure, people can come and hide in a large church. That's absolutely true. But it's not the church's fault in most cases. People refuse to participate in what they're really strongly encouraged and enabled to do. It's, it is a little harder to hide in a, in a small church because there are only you know, 118 people there and everybody knows each other. And if you're there doing nothing, it's really obvious to the whole group right there. Yeah. So the nature of the way the community functions is is at least potentially inherently an advantage in the smaller church. It's easier to get to some level of intimate community. But see, from the other side, if somebody is just checking out Jesus and they walk into a small church, immediately everybody descends on them and they're singled out for special attention, and it actually drives a lot of people away. Hmm. Yes. It's an interesting. It is an interesting uh, dynamic in terms of, of what's going on there. What are other advantages of a small church? I mean, obviously the intimacy, the fellowship, or at least the potential for that is strong. What else is? What One el- of the things that I find helpful in a smaller church is that the sermons can be more directed to the people who are there because the diversity of stories isn't so great. So a pastor can really speak to the congregation in applicational kinds of ways that are much more specific. And I've got a large church with thousands in it. I have to be generic in my applications because there's just so much diversity in the group. So I think that's a real advantage of being able to preach specifically to the people in, your, in the Sunday morning gathering. So um, 
so so really in some ways what we're saying is you know uh, large church yes small church yes uh, the issue is not the size the issue Absolutely. is is the church being the church yeah and the again there's personal presence personal preference i actually prefer a smaller church i'm in a mid-sized church and i do a lot of work with large churches and I think what we should do is go to the church that works best for my spiritual growth and enjoy it and quit comparing and being critical of somebody who's in a different size church. There are advantages to every size and there are disadvantages to every size. Yeah, that really is the point of the exercise here is to just to kind of discuss some basic core ecclesiology, just to yeah. throw in the big word, and, uh, and what church should be and how we should think about church, how we should view church, et cetera. Let's talk a little bit about pastoral leadership and, and, okay. and leadership style, because obviously um, one of the, another advantage of a small church is, is, that, is that in some senses um, it's easier to get involved in, at one level in the sense of the needs are usually pretty obvious and, and people can step in, and whereas in a, a large church, as you say, you can get lost. It isn't that large churches discourage involvement. I know a lot of churches that promote involvement. That's not the problem. But you, it, it's, it's easy to be overwhelmed in a big church. It mm -hmm. certainly is not so easy in a smaller church to be uh, as overwhelmed. Uh, that's true. Uh, it is easier to connect because the web of relationships is smaller. But in a larger church, you often have people, you have specialists who are there to do training to really equip you to do the work. Or in a smaller church, there isn't somebody to train you for that kind of work. You got to figure it out by yourself. So again, there are advantages on both sides. And in a small church, there only be a few opportunities for service. And if that isn't what I'm really gifted and passionate about. I may not be able to find a place that my where I'm really going to thrive in a larger church. I might have more opportunities to really clip into what I'm connected with, and I might thrive in the larger church. So again, it it's not a one size fits all. That that's uh, fair enough. Now, well, let's talk about the structure of church leadership for a second. Right. Uh, how should we think about? You know, there are models of church in which the pastor is you know is the guy. Um, right. And uh, you know, I mean, he—he's—he's he's not just a CEO. In some cases, he's—you know—he's it. Um, and then there are other models in which the the leadership is is shared. Let's talk a little bit about what the Bible has to say about about that uh, about about leadership and the structure of leadership. One of the passages I go to pretty regularly is a passage like Acts chapter 6 or Acts chapter 15 where we get a glimpse into the inner working of a church. And in Acts chapter 16, when the widows are not being served well, the question, the complaint doesn't go to Peter, the senior pastor, it goes to the apostles who are serving as the elder team of that church. In Acts 15, where we see the development now of elders, again, the charge does not go to one guy, it goes to the apostles and elders along with the whole church. Seems to me that the New Testament model of leadership is a shared leadership of team of diverse people, and my inclination very much to see the Acts chapter 4, uh, Apes, the apostles, prophet, evangelist, uh, shepherd, and teacher, as different types of skills that need to be represented in that leadership team. So I think that's what should happen. Team of, should be a leader, 
and you should have different kinds of people on there and in the mutuality of those different kinds of people you'll have an enriching and sometimes frustrating mix of leadership yeah and you'll have an array of gifts and skills etc yep. which allows uh, the community to function so that uh, I, I think this is true what you see in Acts and what you even see uh, laid out in the pastoral epistles assumes that there are multiple leaders in a community yep. Uh, yep. that they are sharing the authority that they um, uh, share the responsibility for the stewardship and oversight in fact that el one of the terms for elders that's, that's basically true. what it means mm -hmm. um, for the oversight of the community um, uh, that sets the, the direction and the tone. Uh, I'm going to raise something else here that our culture brings into the equation to a certain degree because you have certain models in which the uh, authority is top-down, uh, a kind of hierarchical structure, but you also have church structures and denominations that are built around the idea that it, the membership uh, has a has a major hand in how uh, in how the church operates, more congregational kind of emphasis, if you will. Um, how do we how do we sort through that biblically? That kind of attention. When I'm teaching my ecclesiology class, I break it down into four kinds of models. One is pastor rule, which actually is often called congregational, but it's not. Mm -hmm. All the congregation does is ratify what the pastor wants. Uh, and then there's elder rule. You've got a team of people that gather together and make the decisions and then tell people what to do. You've got elder-led, where the elders lead the congregation in wise decision. And then you've got a true congregational, where it's a group, the whole congregation carries the authority and they vote on most everything. I think all four of those can be legitimate. The least legitimate of the bunch, I would say, would be the pastor rule where it's, the authority is vested in a single person. Unfortunately, that's too common because it fits our corporate culture of a CEO that has a board of advisors but makes the decisions, and also our football teams where there's a coach who makes those decisions, and when he's bad, you fire him and go get a new one. Yeah, uh, <laughs> which happens to pastors, too. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed, it does. So, uh, pastors too often are looked at as football coaches. It's all their responsibility. They get the glory or they get the condemnation. Okay, one one other level of leadership that uh, we need to introduce is kind of this basic way of thinking about the church is the level of the deacons. What what what's What's their role in the scheme of things? We get so little in Scripture about deacons, it's hard to say much of anything, but in the kind of very, very, very prototypical picture in Acts 6, the people that are called deacons are like ministry team leaders. And that's what I'm inclined to do with deacons, is to say that they're men and women who lead ministry teams in the church. It's not a board of deacons. I don't see that ever done in Scripture. I do see elders serving as a board or a team, but the deacons are more... Uh, ministry team leaders with specialized functions in the church that could be anything from financial to building to Sunday school to community relations. It could be just about anything. But you've got a team that leads that, and that would be your deacons, I think. Now, a final issue to think about in relationship to the church, I think, uh, has to do with how people we, – and we've already alluded to this – that the church is about a community, it's about a presence, it's about an impact. And oftentimes what happens in church discussion is there's the time when I gather together as the church, and that's the sacred time. And then there's the rest of life, which is oh something uh, separate and distinct and apart from the church. 
uh, one, uh, actually one of the impacts of thinking about the church as a building is to yeah. create this divide in people's That's minds, correct. which already yeah, when you think of the church as a building or a meeting, you fall into that. And, and, and what that, of course, does is it means that all this other time is viewed almost through a secular kind of non-sacred right. lens, and perhaps even more uh, destructively, what that reflects is an acquiescence to the way our culture wants us to see church. That's correct. That's correct. Um, and yep. it is not biblical. It is not biblical. And the more important thing, I think, is is that it has a lot to say about how people view their own – and I'm going to use this word on purpose here – their own calling that God has given them, where God has them in life, uh, right. as, as being something uh, less than sacred and less than God being involved in. Now, that sounds contradictory, but I've, I've posed it that way on purpose, because mm-hmm. there's a sense in which God – uh, has people where he has them for a very um, sacred purpose, That's but correct. they don't see where God has them as being involved in a very sacred purpose. Speak to that element of church life. Well, again, if if church is a meeting we go to, then that's sacred space. If church is a group of people 24-7, then there's no sacred secular divide. I'm always church. Another distinction that I just despise is the idea that the pastor does the Lord's work because he's hired by the church, but the guy who's an HR director in a corporation isn't doing the Lord's work. I couldn't disagree more. They're both doing the Lord's work, just in different ways. And what we can't do is let people think that it's sacred if the church pays my salary, and it's it's secular. If, a, if somebody else pays my salary or I don't get paid, we're all doing Lord works. Think of Abraham. What was he doing? He was in agribusiness. What about David? He was in the politics. What was in Paul doing? Well, his, his job was uh, construction, small, <laughs> small house construction. I mean, it's, yes, you're doing Lord's work wherever you are because the church is people doing God's business in God's place, and God's place is the whole world, not a building that we gather in on Sunday morning. And that actually does help us, just to refract back on the major part of our discussion, that actually does help us with the small and large church discussion. Absolutely. Because, because it relativizes it to a certain degree. Right. Um, and, and, and so how, how, in your thinking, can pastors do a better job of making people think about one, the church as it is, and two, their vocations as being a part of, of what God is very involved in with them. Mm-hmm. Some of that is uh, there's a lot going on now in the whole work and vocation movement. Uh, we're a part of the Economia Network uh, that has a lot of resources for this. There's a lot of publications. Tim Keller has just done his uh, Every Good Endeavor book. Uh, J. Paul Stevens has done his Work Matters. Tom Nelson did a book, Work Matters. There's a lot of material out that talks about a theology of work. Uh, I've done a thing here at the seminary, uh, a short curriculum on that. Uh, There are a lot of those things. But the pastors, I think the biggest thing for the pastor is they need to actually get out and be involved in people in the the so-called workplace. Go to school with their students. Go to the work with their people who do work, go to homeschooling, you know, be involved with the lives of the people. And remember that the Lord's work is more than just what happens inside the building on Sunday morning. And then preach to that, teach to that, equip to that. 
So that means doing things like not making sure that your illustrations aren't just about you know what God is doing in the midst of your family, but what right. God is doing in the midst of your your work. And here's an important distinction mm-hmm. that I think often is missed: it isn't just about doing evangelism at work; it's That's about correct. how you do your work. That's correct. Um, and thinking about the actual service that you perform in your work. I'm going to illustrate this with my son. Uh, my son is a lawyer. Now, lawyers are come in for lots of jokes for all kinds of reasons. But he's just finished working on a case in which he wrote a report to a university helping them think through how they handle issues of sexual harassment on their campus and how they deal with those reports. It's actually a very important life-significant category yep. of engagement that he has spent hours on trying to help the school sort through what they were doing well and what they were doing poorly, not just in regards to to how the law works, which obviously as a lawyer he was concerned about, but just in terms of the community formation that that represents. Now that actually is a very significant piece of work that he is doing. Yes. And and, uh, I wrote him after the report came out and, and, and said, you know how how proud I was of him that here he had all these choices as a lawyer as to what he could do and be as a lawyer and he's chosen to give his time and his energy to this kind of concern mm-hmm. um, I think that's a very concrete illustration of, of of work that matters and thinking about the choices that you make at work that matter that's correct yeah, my son is a manager at Safeway, and the same kind of thing. He works with the people in the store to create a community of shalom in the name of Jesus, and he's actually creating goodness in that store with the employees and customers that is a work of God, and that is an important work of God. Whether it's a lawyer or a manager or a guy who's just doing checkout work at Safeway, we can do that as the work of the Lord, and it's, it's as it should be. And I can compare what my son is doing with what my daughter is doing in writing the curriculum for fifth grade, or what my other daughter is doing as a school teacher. My goodness, that's that's character forming. Uh, yep. She taught in elementary school for years, second grade and fourth grade, working with little kids, teaching them how to read well and how to think and what they think about and that kind of thing. There are literally all kinds of jobs that are out there, all kinds of services that are out there that would make life much less um, enjoyable or effective or fruitful, however you want to put it, uh, uh, because people are doing what they're doing every day in the everyday workplace. That's great. We're doing good in the community, the Galatians 6.10 type work when you do that, and that's work of God. That's the work of Jesus Christ. And so when we wrap our, uh, our teaching and preaching around a theology – this is where I'm going with this – around a theology that presents the church community as a community and as a presence, okay, right. what, we, what we actually do, we do two things at once. Once we dispel the cultural definition of church that's way too limiting and not very biblical. Right. And secondly, we encourage people in the direction of being equipped for what it is God is actually having them do much and most of their time. Mm-hmm. 
you might want to get a job at a seminary or something. You got good stuff to say. <laughs> well, I do that in my spare time. Uh, and so, uh, well, uh, Gary, I really appreciate you kind of walking us through the basic elements of ecclesiology and thinking through churches and what they should be and what they shouldn't and the issue of size, big or small. When we were joking about doing this, um, we said the title was going to be Churches, Big or Small? Yes. Uh, yes. That, that's kind of kind of the way we're thinking about this. And hopefully, uh, for those of you who've been listening in to us, this has given you a good orientation about how to think about church, whether you lead a church, whether you're in leadership within a church, or whether you're attending a church or thinking about attending a church. These are the kinds of qualities and things you should be looking for uh, as you think about church. What Do you have a final thought for us about how we should think about, uh, about churches and, and in our engagement with them? Well, again, the thing is join in a community of spirit where the power of spirit is real. It's not just an intellectual trip. It's an empowerment trip. It's a transformational trip. And it's fundamentally a community, a community that's present in the world to bring the fame of Jesus Christ so that people see our good deeds and praise the God who is in heaven. And so in the process of being encouraged and edified and sharing in worship together and, and encouraging one another to love and good deeds, to use a passage, another famous passage in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, we, we, we show ourselves to be the community that represents Jesus Christ. We reflect the presence of God's power and God's spirit in the midst of the world. Uh, we reflect the presence of his, of his kingdom in the yep. world that, uh, of course, God is, is working in and through, uh, which makes the church certainly one of the most important institutions that God has designed yep. uh, on earth to, to bring attention to his plan and glory. Well said. Well, I agree. Well, thank you for uh, joining with us, Gary, and talking about ecclesiology. We've, we've enjoyed the conversation, and we thank you for being a part of the table where we discuss issues of God and culture, and we look forward to seeing you again. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.